You can open your Bibles to Psalm 130. It's a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Oh, church, this is the holy word of the Lord, authoritative and sufficient for all things. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather and know you more. I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would help us to know your character better. Would you help us to wait on you and help us understand better how to care for one another as we do? It's in Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. A handful of you know me very well, a bit of, uh, some of you know me a bit, and many of you do not know me at all. For anyone who knows me even a little, it should come as no surprise to you that I really struggle with waiting. Whether it's waiting for a new movie or album I'm really looking forward to, or waiting to buy something I really want or think is awesome, or waiting to know what's next in life, or even waiting for something I've been longing for for years. Waiting, in general, is a very difficult thing for me. Maybe you can relate. Wait. There are few words that make my heart sink and my mind race more than the word wait. I've got a handful of illustrations of waiting from my life this morning. Uh, Waiting to date my wife, Amanda. Longest five months of my life. (laughs) Waiting to propose to Amanda. Longest six and a half months of my life. Waiting to marry Amanda was the longest five and a half months of my life. Those are all true, but we get into some heavier ones. Waiting to graduate college was eight years in the making for me. Waiting and praying for a University City Church plant in Philly was five years. Now here's a few truly heavy ones. Working through my parents' separation, divorce, and the aftermath. That's five years and counting. Waiting for children. It's over nine years and counting. Waiting for God to work in the lives of specific family members. That's over 11 years and counting. What are you waiting for? As I've gotten to know more and more people here at Redeemer, I've become increasingly aware that many of you are in different seasons of waiting. All of us are waiting through a pandemic, I know, I get it. But so many of us are currently waiting for a wide range of reasons. I've heard about grad school, about health issues, foster care and adoptions, family dynamics, finances, 
you name it, there are so many burdens represented in this room. It doesn't have to be super heavy. We can be waiting for things that have a general excitement about them, and the waiting is way more bearable. But maybe the thing you're waiting for or the suffering that you're waiting through is heavy. I want you to know this morning that you are not alone. But even more than that, I believe that the Lord wants to remind us this morning of who he is. He wants us to be reminded of his character and his disposition and his love for us. What this psalm reminds us of, church, is our main idea this morning. Because of God's mercy and grace, we have hope and assurance while we wait on him. Now, no matter what you're waiting for, we're faced with the question, what do we do while we wait? I'm confident that the Lord will answer that question for us this morning through his word. So let's dive into Psalm 130 to learn more about who God is, how to wait on him, and how to care for one another while we do. As we work through this psalm, we see four major sections which make up our points this morning. Number one is crying to the Lord to listen from verses one and two. Number two is the forgiveness of the Lord in verses three and four. Number three is waiting for the Lord in verses five and six. Number four is the redemption of the Lord in verses seven and eight. So let's jump into our first point. Number one, crying to the Lord to listen. Verse one says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. That word, the depths here, is a powerful word. Typically, the depths are associated with things like darkness, despair, feeling lost, feeling alone, feeling overwhelmed, feeling hopeless, or without direction. Typically, that is the case. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Or maybe it's where you find yourself in an extended season of life. When I read this word, a few things come to mind. Like in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's a little hard for us to imagine because the earth didn't exist. It was without form and void. But in that place, it was water and it was darkness. It reminds me of scenes from movies like The Perfect Storm or Master and Commander or books like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. When the ocean deeps are raging, it's chaotic. It's enormous. The depths are amazingly vast. They're overwhelming and disorienting and sometimes terrifying. The clearest illustration of depths that comes to mind for me is the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest place on the planet out in the Western Pacific Ocean. At its deepest recorded point so far, it is over six and a half miles below the surface. For a point of reference, if you took Mount Everest, which is the tallest point on the planet, turned it upside down and dropped it in that trench, it would still be over a mile below the surface. In that place is complete utter, perpetual darkness. The pressure is so intense that it crushes even the strongest metals, over eight tons per square inch. 
It's a constant 34 to 39 degrees, cold enough to feel freezing without actually freezing. The depths is an exhausting, defeating place to be. Do you identify with any of that in life right now? Do you feel like you're in the depths? From the depths is where this psalm is written from. There is no shame in being there. It happens. At some point or another, you will likely encounter the depths in your life. And it's psalms like this that God gives to help us get through. When we're in the depths, it feels like we're alone and no one gets it. We can feel abandoned and aimless. We can feel like we're drowning or lost at sea. We can feel like God isn't there and he can't even hear us. That's exactly what the psalmist is expressing in the end of verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Do you see that? O Lord, hear my voice. It's like saying, God, can you hear me? I'm so lost. I'm drowning. I'm overwhelmed. The psalmist continues, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Church, I love to see how vocal this psalm is. Cry, voice, ears, voice, please. It's vocal. It's out loud. It's not internal. It's not just grumbling or complaining, but vocal, audible, speaking, crying, shouting to God. I don't know about you, but when I feel like I'm in the depths, the last thing I feel like doing is vocally crying out to God. I might feel so frustrated that I could scream, but at the same time, it can feel like it's not going to do anything, so why should I even bother? The depths silence me. But Psalm 130 shows us that we can and should do the opposite. Don't let the depths silence and crush you, church. Cry out to God. When the psalmist cries out, we see here something specific that we can't afford to miss. What are his pleas for in verse 2? Mercy. This is an appeal to God based off of his character that he has communicated to us. Remember back in Exodus 34 when the Lord passes before Moses and declares his name? The Lord, the Lord, a God what? Merciful and gracious. This is an appeal to the character of God because it is who it, he is. He will always be merciful and gracious. The psalmist is crying out for mercy because God is merciful. I know sometimes we can't always see that or feel it, but it is the truth. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is the Lord and it is his fundamental, unchanging character. The psalmist knows this and appeals to the Lord's character because they know it's certain. God's character may in fact be the only thing that you can be certain of while you're in the depths. But Christian, what a certainty that is. 
When you feel that you are in the depths, follow the example of the psalmist and cry out to God. Appeal to and remind yourself of the character of the Lord. He simultaneously is and gives mercy. Not only is God these things, but he desires for us to speak to him. Church, prayer is simply talking to God about anything and everything in your life. But he specifically invites us here in this psalm to cry out to him in prayer when we need him. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. That is your heavenly father. And he invites us to be a people who cry out to him in prayer. Church, because of God's mercy and grace, we have hope. Now, after this reminder of who God is in verse 2, the psalmist turns to another facet of the Lord's character, which brings us to our second point, the forgiveness of the Lord. Now, when you realize that you're in the depths, and if you're crying out to God for mercy, appealing to his character, you're probably pretty keenly aware of your own character and your own sinfulness. In fact, sin, whether it's yours or someone else's, is what leads us into the depths, always. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's dishonesty, maybe it's laziness or rebellion, maybe it's jealousy or greed, maybe it's sexual sin. Whatever it is, it will lead you into the depths. Sin's objective and consequence is to separate us from God. That's what we see here in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This may seem elementary, but it's foundational and super important. The more we know, understand, believe, and trust the character of the Lord, the more we become aware of our own character and what can feel like the vast chasm in between. That chasm, that distance between us and God is called sin. Sin is choosing something, anything, above or instead of God's commands for our lives. Adam and Eve chose it, and every human being since chooses it every day. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has amassed an incredible and severe debt. What is that debt? What's the damage? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages or debt of sin is death. There was no death in the world before sin. Once sin entered the world, death became a constant. Death is brutal. It's terrible. It is the direct result and consequence of our sin. But there's actually something worse. You see... Sin isn't just the means to the end of death. It's also the means to an internal, everlasting separation from God after death. But you cannot pay the debt your sins rack up. It's like our national debt, currently up over $28 trillion. You can't pay that back in a lifetime. Not even the wealthiest person in the world can afford to pay that back. It's like this, the debt of sin is death. So we are a huge negative. 
Again in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. However, there's an if at the start of that sentence. If you should mark iniquities. If God marks your iniquities or holds them against you, you cannot stand innocent before him. But look at the start of the next line with me. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. Church, this is one of the greatest truths in all of history. The Lord forgives. That debt that we've racked up can, in fact, be cleared. But it needs to be paid for. And the price is death. In order for that death to be sufficient for all mankind, an animal sacrifice wouldn't cut it. The whole point of this Old Testament sacrificial system is to illustrate for us that death is the price of sin. And animals and food were insufficient sacrifices to permanently pay that debt. It pointed out our need for a perfect sacrifice, one that would sufficiently last for all eternity. This is why Jesus came into the world. He lived a perfect life so that his undeserved, unjust, willing death would be the only possible perfect sacrifice for sin. To meet the requirement of death, Jesus became human to pay that price for us. In order for that death to be sufficient for all those who put their faith in Jesus over the span of human history, that death needed to be a divine one. Which is why Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. His death on the cross satisfied both the human and divine requirements necessary to sufficiently, permanently pay the debt of our sin. Now, if you believe in Jesus as Savior, that he died for your sins, there's an amazing thing that has happened. That, That massive debt that you owe for your sin, it has been completely cleared. It is gone entirely. It's like someone wrote a check for the exact balance of the national debt and gave it as a gift. That debt you could never pay in your entire lifetime has been wiped away. The Lord's deposit of forgiveness matches our debt of sin and wipes it away to be remembered by the Lord no more. But it doesn't stop there. If you believe that Jesus died for you and that he's the only way to be forgiven of your sins, not only has your debt been cleared by the Lord's forgiveness, but you've been given the additional deposit of Jesus' righteousness. What's that mean? It means that when God looks at us as forgiven through Jesus' sacrificial death, he doesn't even see our sin anymore. He chooses to forget it. But even more than that, God doesn't just look at us and see a zero balance. God looks at us and sees the infinite balance of the righteousness of Jesus himself. Our debt has been cleared by the forgiveness of the Lord. And on top of that, we've been given the incredible, priceless gift of being counted as right before God through Christ. If you truly believe that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead on your behalf, God will not mark your iniquities He only marks you as righteous and adopts you as son or daughter. What a gift. Amen.
The forgiveness of the Lord is truly an incredible thing, church. And the, the result of such forgiveness should truly and greatly affect us, which is what we see in the end of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The contrast between the fear of the Lord if he held or marked our iniquities against us and the awestruck fear of the Lord out of a forgiven and grateful heart is a powerful one. Believer, we need not fear God for our guilt and sin because he has forgiven us. We need, not let that forg- we need to let that forgiveness have its full effect on our hearts and let it, be, let it stir us to awe at the power of God to forgive even though we deserve his judgment against our iniquities. The forgiveness of the Lord is and must be awe-inspiring. It is truth ever-present on our minds and in our hearts. Christian, you have been forgiven. There is no more debt for you to pay. We get to live in the light and life and freedom of Jesus, and it is incredible. What a momentum shift from being in the depths. Church, there is nothing else that can sufficiently take our eyes off of our circumstances and experiences like dwelling on the forgiveness of the Lord through the sacrifice of Jesus. Remind yourselves of that sacrifice. Friends, because of God's mercy and grace, we have hope and assurance. But Drew, you say, what about the waiting? Yeah. While the forgiveness of the Lord is truly incredible and has secured for us an eternal hope and reality, we still live in the here and now, don't we? I believe what this psalm is showing us in how it's ordered is that we cannot actually, actively, truly wait for the Lord until we have been affected by and reminded of the Lord's forgiveness and the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Once we're there, our next point makes so much more sense. So after dwelling on the forgiveness of the Lord, we come to our third point, waiting for the Lord. After crying out to the Lord and being reminded of the Lord's forgiveness, what does the psalmist do? Verse 5 says he waits. His soul waits. What? I've just cried out to God with all I've got left, the only breath in my lungs. I've worked through how sinful I am and how much I need forgiveness and grace. I need them. I've admitted that and cried it out. I know it's true. Doesn't that get me somewhere or earn me some clarity or response? Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Talk about a reality check. I told you earlier how difficult waiting is for me. As I've been studying and memorizing this passage, every time I get to these two verses, I'm confronted by the, the reality of how impatient, how self-dependent and reliant 
how selfish and needy and weak and faithless I really am. I do not want to wait for the Lord. I want to make things happen. I want answers and direction. I want a response and results. My soul does not want to wait. And even if I do follow the model of this psalm, I get to this point and I expect something from God, like an immediate answer or some clarity or direction. But I think the issue is that so far in that process, I haven't actually waited. Sure, I'm acknowledging my state and crying out to God. Sure, I'm reflecting on God's character and being confronted by my own. Sure, I've been reminded of the truths and realities of Jesus dying for me. But at that point, I'm not actually actively waiting for the Lord. But I must. And so in his enduring kindness, the Lord helps us to wait for him. How incredible is that? The same God that desires that we cry out to him and know him and wait for him is the same God that helps us to actually actively wait on him. How does he help us to wait for him? The end of verse 5 shows us, in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. That's it? Church, that's it. How do you usually wait for something? If you're anything like me, you try to occupy yourself with doing something else. I can't even wait through TV commercials. I'll scroll through YouTube or Facebook like something significant has happened in the last five or ten minutes since the last time I checked. When I'm waiting, I am the most active I will ever be at trying to distract myself. But that's not waiting that's not letting or making my soul wait. It's, tr- it's really the exact opposite. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to actually actively wait for him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust his character. He wants us to trust his promises. He wants us to trust his word. When we read his word here in Psalm 130, it's primarily meaning the word of the Lord, like, I've given you my word that I'm going to do something. When God gives his word, it is certain. God cannot break a commitment or covenant because it goes against his very nature. So what is his word? Back in Exodus 34, we get a glimpse The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Put simply, the word of the Lord is that he is who he says he is and will never change. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word of the Lord is that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. The word of the Lord is that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The word of the Lord is that he will by no means clear the guilty. He is just and must punish sin. The word of the Lord is that he has provided Jesus as the payment for the debt of sin we owe. 
The word of the Lord is that if you believe in Jesus, he has set us free and changed our hearts. The word of the Lord is that if you believe in Jesus, the spirit of God is alive in you, helping you to know and love and trust him as Lord. The word of the Lord is right here in this book. It is full of his promises and his character. As you seek to actually, actively wait on the Lord, trust in his word. The effect of waiting for the Lord, making your soul wait, and trusting in his word, is that your waiting begins to turn into hopeful expectation. The word hope in the Bible does not mean what it means today. It really is nothing like it. We use it like, I hope I get that done today. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope that interview went well. What biblical hope means is more certain. It's a sure thing because it's rooted in who the Lord is, and that doesn't change. We have hope in what Jesus has done because of who he is. There is no maybe. It's a certainty. So to have hopeful expectation is to eagerly expect a certain outcome. Now, I am not saying that if you follow the model of this psalm and actually actively wait for the Lord, that the thing you want or desire or the season that you're waiting through will magically happen or come to an end. That is not how this works. What we see in this psalm is that as we cry out to the Lord from the depths and remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done and promises to do, as we seek and trust him to help us wait for him, what happens is that the thing we're waiting for or waiting through begins to fade away. As we actually actively wait for the Lord, our waiting turns into hopeful expectation that the Lord will indeed help us, forgive us, have mercy on us, and be gracious toward us. When we are hopefully expecting those things from and about the Lord, we grow more eager for them. And we will make it through any chaotic, overwhelming depths we will ever encounter. We see this in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Now I get that more than watchmen for the morning might not be a strong or powerful image for you. But let me explain. The night watchmen stood guard through the darkness of night watching for danger or attack. They waited through the night for the expected and certain dawn of the morning sun, signaling that they had made it safely through the night. The sun rises each morning. It is a certainty. You can count on it. How much more certain is it that the Lord will see us through when we're waiting through a trial or time of suffering? He is the dawn. When we do make it through, the proverbial dawning of the morning sun is the sweetest thing we could ever imagine. I made it. Jesus brought me through. 
The repetition of this line, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. It's intended to stand out and draw attention to the eager expectation that we have available to us while we wait for the Lord. It is that certain. Christian, as you actively let your soul wait for the Lord, expect the dawn. The word of the Lord is certain and he will see you through. You can count on him while you wait on him. Now the question begs to be asked, how do we wait like this? How do we actively wait and hope like watchmen for the morning? Church, we actively wait and hope by reading our Bibles to know God for who he is and what he promises. We actively wait and hope by spending time with God in prayer talking to him and trusting him. We actively wait and hope by faithfully gathering on Sunday mornings as the church to be collectively reminded and encouraged by God's mercy and grace and patience and love and faithfulness. We actively wait and hope by sitting under the preached word of God, submitting our lives to its authority and sufficiency and truth, We actively wait and hope by living life as closely with other believers as we're able so that we can care for and encourage and remind each other about God's mercy and grace in order that we might have fuller hope and assurance while we wait on him together. All this waiting, I can't help but think of God's people as they waited for over 400 years to hear from God before Jesus came. They had waited so long that many Jews did not and do not still believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you can relate to that idea. Maybe you can relate to that feeling. Maybe you've been waiting on God for so long that you've missed some of the ways that he's spoken to you or answered you. Or provided for you. Maybe you've been waiting so long you don't think that he will. What a reminder that Palm Sunday today can be for us. Jesus Christ has come. God's biggest promise has been kept, church. That portion of waiting on God is over. And it should fill our hearts and souls with expectant hope that God will continue to keep his promises and continue to deliver his people. Because of God's mercy and grace, we have hope and assurance while we wait on him. Now, as the psalmist is convinced of God's mercy and grace, he has this assurance of who God is and is able to expectantly hope for God's promises to be kept As his heart and his soul get to this place, he turns from a personal experience to a shared one. Which brings us to our final point, the redemption of the Lord. After working through the pattern of this psalm, this curve from the despair of the depths to the hopeful assurance of the Lord to come through at the right time, at the right place, The psalmist turns his personal exhortation to a shared public exhortation. O Israel, hope in the Lord, he says in verse 7. 
It's the natural progression of the Christian life. After working, uh, it's the recognizing your sin. That's where it starts. Recognize your sin and need for saving. Be rescued and renewed by Jesus. Praise his name for who he is and what he's done. And then tell others about it. This is a major way that God has designed his kingdom and the fame of his name to spread. No matter where you find yourself this morning, the Lord is proclaiming to you through the psalmist, believer, hope in the Lord. When the exhortation goes from personal to public, the content doesn't change. Look at what the psalmist reminds Israel, a.k.a. us, of in verses 7 and 8. First, they are reminded of the Lord's character. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. Sound familiar? It's the same point from earlier, exhorting those around them to remember the fundamental character of God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This isn't new, church. We must remind each other of who God is constantly because we lose sight of it. We forget it. We get so caught up in our own circumstances and situations and what we need to do and get done. We get caught up in all of our goals and dreams for next month and next year and five years from now. Then all of a sudden we find ourselves distanced from God and feeling alone and overwhelmed and silenced by the depths. Friends, we must fight against this. Let us commit to reminding each other of who the Lord is together constantly. They're also reminded of the Lord's redemption at the end of verse 7. And with him is plentiful redemption. This should sound familiar too. This again is the same point from earlier about the Lord's character. He keeps steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity. Are you seeing the connections? Are you seeing the pattern? What we must remind ourselves of in order to wait while we're in the depths are the very same things that we must remind others about the Lord. They are the very same things that God himself has been reminding his people of since the very beginning. He is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. He is our God, all-powerful and unchanging, full of mercy and grace and love. Church, let us commit to reminding each other of the Lord's redemption together constantly. They're also reminded of the Lord's promise in verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This line takes the whole of Psalm 130 and packs it into a one-liner for the ages. Believer, why do you cry out to the Lord? Because he will redeem you from all your iniquities. Believer, why do you wait for the Lord? Because he will redeem you from all your iniquities. Believer, why do you hope in the Lord? Because he will redeem you from all your iniquities. Believer, why do you eagerly, expectantly hope in the Lord? Because he will redeem you from all your iniquities. Believer, why do you declare to others about the Lord? Because he will redeem you from all your iniquities. This final stanza is one that both reminds us of the fundamental character of God and also promises the activity of that same God. He will redeem his people and it will be from all of their iniquities.
And like we've seen already, this ties back into verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, prompting again a heart full of gratefulness and hope for the waiting of this promise to be truly, ultimately fulfilled. Church, do you see how this could be a cyclical blessing among believers? You're feeling in the depths. This psalm comes to mind and you follow its pattern. So you call those around you to hope in the Lord and remind them of the Lord's character and redemption and promise. Maybe someone else feels like they're in the depths and the cycle repeats. Or maybe someone hears your exhortation and tucks it in their back pocket for later and down the line, the cycle begins to repeat. If it hasn't been abundantly clear already, I love the picture of the gospel in this psalm. Apart from Christ, we are completely lost and helpless in the depths of our sin. But God, being full of mercy and grace, reaches down into the depths and pulls us out. He doesn't ignore the cost of our sin, but pays the debt for us by killing his own son. And as we behold the love of, the love of God displayed in Jesus' death in our place on the cross, we see who God is and how much he loves us and that he keeps his promises Jesus rises from the dead, conquering sin and death, which gives us hope and assurance that God can be trusted as we wait on him. And as we wait on him, we are stirred to praise him. As we praise him and wait on him, we are driven to proclaim all that he has done for us to all of those around us. This is used to both encourage other believers and display God's love and mercy and grace to those around us who do not yet believe in Jesus. What a beautiful gospel this is. This psalm is an incredible gift from the Lord to help his people wait for and trust him for who he is. Believer, remind yourself and remind others that the Lord is worth waiting for. He will come through in the right time, at the right place. You can count on him while you wait on him. Wait for the Lord. To wrap this up, church, remember this. Because of God's mercy and grace, we have hope and assurance while we wait on him. If you wouldn't say that you're in the depths currently, tuck this away for when you do. And look for those around you who are in the depths. If you do find yourself in the depths currently, Begin by crying out to the Lord in prayer. Appeal to his unchanging character of mercy and grace and steadfast love for those very same things. Remember his forgiveness through Jesus. Remember that he has pulled you out of the depths of your sin. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're in the depths but don't have a relationship with Jesus, he is ready and willing to pull you out of the depths of your sin if you believe that he died for you to save you and change you. Just cry out for him to save you. Church, wait for the Lord. Let and make your soul wait on and trust in the word of the Lord. Remember his redemption and promises. Church, by the mercy and grace of God, let us confidently wait for him together.